0: Hi, I'm D-Ready, and welcome to Scale by Intercom. You've probably heard about the recent changes that we've made on the Inside Intercom blog. Scale is now a dedicated space where you can find a wealth of materials, including podcasts, of course, that explore how businesses are driving growth through customer relationships. As part of this, we'll also be releasing a new scale podcast episode for you every second week. So you can continue to hear from a slate of brilliant leaders and thinkers about the strategies and frameworks that they've used to chart new paths for their customers and their companies. Our guest this week has been somewhat of a regular on the podcast this year, having appeared in our SaaS response to COVID-19 episode, as well as our home series, with good reason too. Lauren Paddleford is General Manager of Shopify Plus and has a wealth of insight to share on the retail revolution that's happened online. In his discussion with Intercom's Director of Content, John Collins, they discuss hypergrowth and how to achieve it, the art of building a sub brand within an established brand, and the future of retail. It's a really interesting conversation, so let's hear from John and Lauren.
1: Welcome to the show, Lauren. I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and how you ended up leading Shopify Plus.
2: Sure. So um, I think I've had a non-traditional background in a lot of ways. So uh, I went to university to be a psychologist, but quickly discovered that no one wants a 21-year-old psychologist. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine was like, hey, you should get into sales. And I thought that was insane because what person would rightly want to be in sales? But I did. I got in. I got into sales, and I started selling photocopiers right out of university. That led to uh, other bits of hardware that I sold, telecom, and then ultimately I got into software. And so I was selling software, enterprise software, and I was, I guess, fairly good at it. And so I was starting to manage teams, small sales teams, then managed larger sales teams, both locally, regionally, then ultimately globally, then started to take over managing marketing as well and then broader parts of the business and ultimately moved into kind of what I'll call general management, running large parts of organizations, uh, owning P&Ls, always in a software space, but never in the same software space twice. So I spent a long time in health and safety and then time in risk management and then time in CRM. And so... I was in Canada, and if you're in Canada in 2014, you knew who Shopify was because it was like the fast-growing unicorn. So they posted a job online, and it was for a VP of sales for their quote-unquote enterprise division. And I thought that was odd, given who they were, that they would post that job because they could kind of just go get whoever they wanted. So I applied. I did the thing everyone tells you not to do. I applied online. I didn't know anybody that worked at Shopify. I had no experience in commerce. And you know somehow something about my background or something was interesting for them, and I started talking to them. And a number of weeks later, they offered me uh, this, this role. So
1: obviously, maybe selling those photocopiers in the early days gave you some empathy with merchants, too.
2: You know, it's interesting, and I think this is is kind of why Shopify is so unique in a lot of ways, is I think they liked the variety, right? Uh, You know, if you're going to build something brand new, and you're going to build it from scratch, and you're going to build it in a world that is rapidly evolving, what you need is creativity. And you need a broad experience because if your whole experience has been installing a playbook over and over again in the same space and doing things over and over, you're you're not going to be able to adapt fast enough. So I think ultimately, in retrospect, what they liked was the craziness of my background, right? That I've done hardware and software and services and consulting and all this kind of stuff in a variety of industries around the world. And so I, I got this job, but there wasn't a job to have yet. Right. Um, so I got I got into the business and they were like, So yeah, we, we want to do this thing, so we hired you. Can you figure out how to do it? was my onboard. And that
1: thing that thing was uh, was Shopify Plus or became that Shopify
2: that, Plus. That thing was plus. And so what we had at that time, and this is late 2014, is Shopify, you start a company on Shopify, you start an online business. Well, some of these businesses are extremely successful. So they go from being small businesses to being um, fast-growing large businesses very quickly. Well, in the software world, you get to a certain stage, and the software is stratified into free tools, SMB tools, mid-market tools, and enterprise tools. And so there's like this nice progression that a company sh- is told they have to go through, is you start using Excel, then you use QuickBooks, right? Then then you use Xero uh, or something like that, and then eventually you end in the nightmare called SAP. Um, and so it, it's like companies just have this, it's so ingrained that that's what you do as a business that people just follow the path. They don't even think about it. So what sure. we were getting is customers who were being successful and they got to a certain size and they were like, okay, uh, Shopify was great, but you're for the little guys and we're big now. So we're going to leave and we're going to go buy Oracle or SAP or some crazy enterprise yep. system. Well, that seemed insane to us is why would you let the most successful customers leave the platform? And so that's plus is plus was initiated to give the current customers a runway so that they could continue to grow and scale globally on Shopify. And, but Shopify had never built an enterprise business. So, you know, they built arguably the greatest entrepreneurial business in software in the world. But this other world was just so unlike that. So they, they hired me and they were like, good, build that thing. And I was like, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to (laughs) build. And they're like, cool, then you're in the same boat as all of us. This will be a great time. Isn't this going to be wonderful? And, you know, there you go. So that's, that's the, how I got to Shopify
1: story. And and that speaks to, you you know, the way you've framed the problem there that, you know, people just assume there had to be something to graduate to. I mean, that kind of, I wanted to touch on maybe why you actually created a separate brand or why, why, why plus became a thing. And it, it, it really was to differentiate, I suppose, for those customers who felt like, well, we need to move on to the, move into the big leagues now. Yeah, Yeah, that that they could do that and stay with Shopify.
2: Yeah. So I hate enterprise software. Mm -hmm. I think the enterprise software market is bad for customers and it has been for a very long time, but there's never been a good alternative. So there's this fascinating reality. There's an inverse relationship with the amount of money you pay for software and the quality of the outcomes. Mm -hmm. So it seems to be like the larger you get, the more complex you get as a business, The bigger the software packages that you buy, the more money you spend, the larger the teams you need, and the worse the software gets. Like, I can't actually identify another market in the world where this is true. Everywhere else, the more you pay, the higher the quality gets. It's only in software where the more you pay, the worse the quality gets. So, Shopify, from its inception, has been a counter-narrative right? It's like, why do you need to pay a huge amount of money? Why do you need to have a giant IT organization to start a company? You, you shouldn't. That's the genesis of Shopify. Toby wanted to run, he wanted to do a snowboard store. So that that's how Shopify started is he, he wanted to sell snowboards. And so he went to look for software where an entrepreneur could sell snowboards online and couldn't find it. The only thing that was available was these giant enterprise systems that cost millions of dollars. So he wrote his own. We're lucky, Toby was a developer, so he built his own software. But that's been the story is like, why? Why why does the world work this way? Why is why are things reserved for the rich, right? And, and the the powerful corporations? Why can't you give an entrepreneur all of that same power and capabilities so they can compete on a global scale? And that's been the mission of Shopify. Well, that same thing applies at the quote-unquote enterprise, is as you scale up, it shouldn't mean that you suddenly go from spending $10,000 to spending $10 million. It shouldn't mean that you need a huge team of people. So what we were doing at, at Shopify and what we did with Plus and why we created that kind of alternate brand is, one, we recognized that Shopify's persona in the market was SMB. Everyone knew it as the place you go if you want to start something, but nobody knew it as the place you go if you were already something or you were big or complex. So we wanted to give the brand separation so it could talk to two different markets at the same time. Because the the language and the nature of how large customers interact with software companies is different at the moment than it is with. Entrepreneurs and startups. So we wanted to to provide the opportunity for us to have two conversations with two separate markets at the same time without conflicting with each other. And so that's that's why we created the second brand.
1: And you very much position uh, Shopify Plus. You know, you're very open in your marketing about being sort of the anti enterprise commerce platform, and you know equating the enterprise very much with the kind of bloated software you talked about. How how hard is that to maintain though as, as Shopify Plus's market share grows like can you still continue to be the challenger brand when you've got you know whatever seven thousand brands now on Shopify Plus and I, I think yeah. I saw a stat that you're eleven thousand checkouts per minute which is just phenomenal like yeah. ca- can you maintain that challenger position uh, with that, those kind of growth figures?
2: Well, so here's the thing: is it isn't a position. I like I I don't care about the enterprise, right? I think it's it's. It's beautiful marketing created by a mafia of companies that has existed for five decades that has convinced the world that you should spend a huge amount of money to get crappy software. So I'm not actually trying to be like them. I don't want to be like the enterprise. I'm not trying to become an enterprise software company. I don't look at our customers as enterprise customers. That's a pricing model in the software market, not reality. So I think our position has always been, no, we're going to give you the solution that does what you want. We're going to make it cost effective. We're going to make it efficient. So you don't need huge amounts. Isn't that just what a good software company should do? And so um, I I think that's a distinct difference is I'm not trying to make the next Oracle or SAP or Salesforce. I'm actually trying to make them all go away because I just think they're bad for their customers. I think that business model is bad for the world. And so we're, we're trying to transform that. And so we're, anti just because it's stupid and you just shouldn't do that and we don't want to play along. And so as we get more customers, I think what's being proved is our version of reality versus, so here's what people come to me all the time. They're like, yeah, but when you grow up, you're going to have to be different. I, I hear that so many times and I keep asking them what, like, or, or said another way. Yeah. But when you get to the real world, you're going to have to act differently. And I keep asking them, what this real world is, because it sounds terrible,
1: right? Uh, And it certainly sounds like the the size of your business right now. Um, You you can very much make the argument,
2: you are the real world. Well, and and so this is my counter is, as far as I can tell, I, I am the largest, quote unquote, enterprise, right? Commerce platform in the world by number of customers and throughput. So who is the real world and who is the old world trying to hang on? Like a lot of this rhetoric sounds like death spirals, right? It sounds like companies who are realizing their business models are no longer tenable. Their customers are are upset and need to be more nimble and all that kind of stuff. And so they're they're grasping at straws, trying to put us in a box, which we've already broken out of, and we've already proven this business model works. And what I say to them is like, I might be full of it, but I don't know how you're going to explain the 7,000 customers.
1: And in terms of the operational model between Shopify and Shopify Plus, are you running them as like distinct business units? How do you sort of think about or manage the relationship between the two in terms of products? And, you know, I'm just just curious how you maintain the two internally.
2: Yeah. Early on, um, it was kind of a service lay on. So the early product of Plus was an account manager, some additional APIs, and a little bit of like unique product. But it wasn't a huge difference. As we developed and we found that there was a much larger market that we could interact with, and uh, that larger market needed more distinct features, these customers were more complicated. It wasn't that they were necessarily larger, um, although most of them were. It was that they were more complex. The things they were doing were more complicated. Um, We have created our own now, plus has its own R&D org. Um, that builds product just for that customer, that customer group. So largely plus is as an autonomous business unit of Shopify. And so we have our own sales and marketing, our own brand, our own account management, our own product, um, all, all those kinds of things. That said, Shopify is a globally distributed platform, which means every customer is on the core platform. There is no isolation. Gotcha. And so we are the benefactors of all of what Shopify builds. So the Plus customers not only get what Plus is building for them, but they also get access to what the entirety of Shopify is building. And so we have a leverage that most other, uh, custo- most other software companies trying to, to work with this market have. It was actually the thing that opened the door, is the first set of customers that talked to Plus were like, well, wait a minute you're for the little guys, like you can't, like we're big, you're not going to be able to handle our scale. And it was in those moments where we had to remind people how big Shopify was, like how much volume Shopify was doing. And that was when people were like, oh, okay, so wow, you can already handle this kind of volume. That opened the door to those customers. And so that ability to leverage Shopify is a huge advantage that we have in Plus, but Plus outside of that is highly autonomous and operates, you know, in a in a very unique and distinct way.
1: Yeah, and it, that kind of speaks. I think to the how actually, you know, it's not just a sub brand. It is Shopify plus more. It's you're getting everything that Shopify has, but correct. Extra.
2: Yeah, correct. We struggled with names where, you know, uh, it's like, what are you you going to call this thing? We came up with Plus. Although we just, I think, ultimately, we we stole that off Google Plus, which no longer exists.
1: (laughs) It does what it says on the tin, as they say. (laughs) Yes. I'd love to talk to you, Lauren, a little bit. You've been on this phenomenal growth journey at Shopify and. You know, as I said, you're you're now like with 7,000 brands on there selling and, you know, doing 11,000 checkouts per minute, which is crazy figures. But, you know, you yourself have kind of written and, and, and talked a bit about the, this kind of hyper growth and what people can learn from it. And I was really interested, you have this kind of identify these four elements that, that you really think are needed to fuel that, that hyper growth. The first of which is you say you, you need to hire the best people. How do you ensure you're doing that? I mean, it's such a struggle for, for everyone in terms of like attracting people to wherever your offices are, like finding the right people that like everyone's chasing the same talent. What, what have you learned about that?
2: One of the core cultural constructs of Shopify is we build for the long term. So Toby says it a lot in public. We are trying to build a hundred year company. So in order to build a hundred year company, you have to build it with a super strong foundation and that's people. Uh, businesses are just collections of people. So when I say you've got to hire the best people, a lot of that is being willing to wait. And I see many companies fall into this trap. They're growing quickly. They have open headcount. They have roles they need to hire. And because they're busy and they're stretched to their own limits, they start to degrade the quality of the, the talent pool in order to fill the seat and so they make suboptimal decisions and hire sub-optimal people because they have the they have the need they're busy they need someone to help them the problem with that strategy is while it feels good and you're like i hired someone now i'm going to have help well you are only ever going to be as good as your lowest common denominator so if you start to degrade because of time and because of pressure you'll never get that back it'll slowly erode the quality of your organization. So I think the hard part is waiting. The hard part is being very um, intentional about holding that bar and saying, we will not hire less. I will suffer individually and do more work on my own or ask my team to do more while we wait for the right person. And, because it, all, that that is going to be the key to long-term growth. The talent pool that you have will determine whether you will be successful or not. You can have the best products in the world, the best market in the world. It doesn't actually matter. If you don't have the best people, you will fizzle out. And so if you're going to try and build something over the long term, hiring the best people and being willing to wait being willing to say no, being willing to leave a seat open until you've found the right person is critical in that. Because the moment you stop, that's the moment you start to degrade your long-term potential.
1: Yes, and presumably once you start to compromise on on some hires, you know, in turn those people hire people and you know their bar is going lower as well.
2: So it just becomes a death spiral, really, isn't it? Uh, correct. But the reverse of that is also true. So If you hold and you hire the best talent, they hire the best talent. And then the best, so you see this in sports a lot, is you see teams who start to build out, um, you know, dynasties, big, long-term professional organizations. Uh, And what happens is, is they get a few of the best players. Then those best players start doing well. The teams start doing well. Then it attracts others. Then eventually all the best players in the world want to go there. And it's like, it's a yeah. virtuous cycle, but you have to hold, you have to be willing to say no to average, right? Even though it feels bad, even though it's hard and you're like, man, I really need to fill this role. You have to be willing to make that trade-off or else you'll never get there.
1: Yeah. And it's harder, obviously, then if 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 you do make that sort of compromise and, and you get someone in and, and, and it's not working out because that, that's just yeah. bad for everyone. So, I mean, once you get to people, right, your you, second principle you identified, which I thought was interesting, was setting and holding a high standard of performance. And, and presumably, if you have best people, that, that comes a bit easier. But how do, how do you ensure you are maintaining that, that high standard of performance?
2: Yeah. So, the best people want to be pushed. So, there's a, there's a counter. In, humans are hard. Right? They are by far <laughs> the hardest part of a business. And, and, and so, humans naturally won't go to their edge. It's, it's an instinct. We, we aren't going to put ourselves in danger. And so you could have extremely talented people, but you have to push them because they won't go right to that. So the example I use of this is, I you know if you remember, we all kind of, Usain Bolt, the sprinter from Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually not sure we've ever seen him run as fast as he can run. And the reason is, is no one's even close to as fast as he is. And so he can win without running as hard as he has to. So if you look at all the Olympics, all the world championships, he stops running with 10, 15 meters left. You can just see it. Yep, so how fast is Usain yeah, Bolt? Well, nobody really knows because no one's ever pushed him to run as hard as he can run. Well, this is true of all top performers. is They're very talented, but usually they can get by with not doing the most they can do. So the best managers push them to push them to their edges. That doesn't mean you work them to the bone and you overwork them and you burn them out. It just means you ask them to do things slightly beyond where they've done them before. Mm-hmm. And when they scream and complain about that's going to be hard, that's impossible, no one's ever done that before, the best managers just smile and 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 say, I believe you can do this and I'm not going to move the bar. Mm-hmm. I, I was going
1: to ask you about that because you do say, uh, you know, peak performance comes right when the screaming is the loudest. And so you don't necessarily mean screaming as in, you know, everyone's fighting with each other. But just, you know, that moment where you say this is the goal for the quarter and, and the team say, oh, no, we can't do that.
2: Yeah, it's like if you're looking at product, right, and you say, hey, we need to ship, you know, when, when can we ship this product? And the product teams do the analysis and they come back and they say, we can ship this product by the end of the quarter. You know, now you could accept that, and you'll be like, "Okay, great, end of the quarter." Really strong managers will be like, "Cool, uh, can we ship it by the end of the month?" Now you have to balance reality. You can't just set ridiculous expectations that no one can hit, because that'll have the reverse impact. You'll be you'll demoralize the team. So you've got to make a judgment call on what do you think is plausible, but would take real effort. It would take these teams being inventive and thinking differently and pushing themselves. And that's the bar you set. Well, what will happen is they will chirp, right? They will start to complain or say it's not possible or give you a thousand reasons why it can't be done. A good manager, you have to listen to those. And if they're right, relent and give them a new target. But most of the time, that's just twitchiness. That's like, I'm not sure. I've never seen that happen. And it's like, yeah, this is why you're talented. This is where having the best people matters, is those people will rise. And so you have to hold it and say, I know, I know it seems hard, but I believe you can do this. I know you have this talent. Let's see how close we can get. And most people will, will far exceed the expectation they have of themselves, given that kind of environment. Sure, and that's kind of your your third lesson, like the environment. You talk
1: about need, the need to create the the conditions for success. So yes, what what have you
2: learned there? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you know you, you, you so you hold the bar, you hire you hire the best people, you give them things to do. Now you've got to remove all the stuff that's, that gets in their way. You have to create the conditions for them to be successful. Some of these are binary. Do they have the tools they need to be successful? Um, do they have the environment? a workspace, a work environment? Do they have the training? Do they have the support? All those things need to be in place. And when roadblocks get in their way that they can't remove on their own, you have to be able to help them remove them. So you, you're trying to create an environment for these super talented people to do extraordinary things. And there's a lot of pieces of that, but it's our job as leaders is to lean into that. That is mainly our job. Is I'm going to remove all the distractions so you can do the crazy things we need you to do. Because the more they have to think about things that aren't achieving the outcomes, obviously the less the less impactful they're going to be.
1: Yeah, you don't want them doing busy work or like trying to figure out how to how to get stuff done or how to negotiate the the organization. You just want them doing the work. Yeah yeah that makes makes a lot of sense of course, and the the last one which i as a director of content I can definitely empathize with is you know you say you need you need to tell a great story you need you need
2: something that people can really get behind. yeah, so I think this is the most impactful and least valued skill of leaders um and just anyone in general, is human beings throughout history have never done anything because it was logically good for them. We just don't. That's not our That's not our DNA. We do that because we're emotionally attached to it. We do it because we believe in something. Well, that's a story. People get emotionally attached to a story. So leaders at all levels and individuals have to be able to tell a story that creates the emotional attachment that drives people forward. Because if you just lay out logic, people don't – I mean – people don't respond to logic first our brains are not set up to respond to logic they're they're set up to respond to emotion and so storytelling is is the best way to convey why we're doing this and it's the why that get people to do extraordinary things not the what and so i think the, we don't invest enough in this as organizations um, most companies i interact with startups forever when i say tell me your story they can they articulate the product they tell me the features and the facts. And I'm like, yeah, but no one cares about that. Like, well, why does this exist? Mm-hmm. So, I think this, if I give if I said it, most of the time, I'm like, if all you could do is focus on one thing, focus on your story. Focus on telling a compelling story about why you're doing the things you're doing, because that's going to get people to do extraordinary things.
1: And what was the, the story you told in, at Shopify Plus in the early days? And as, has that story changed now? Is there a, a different story that you, you need to tell the team now to motivate them?
2: Yeah, so I think I, I, I've told a variety of stories, but they all center around kind of three major themes. The one is commerce is fundamentally changing. So the way we shop in the future, right, is not going to look anything like we shop now. And we, Shopify, are the the gasoline to that, right? We, we are the group that gets to make the dreams of entrepreneurs and retailers come true. But we can't do it unless we are contributing to it, unless we're producing the products and features that they need to do that. The second, we have the most amazing customers in the world. These are customers and retailers and merchants that have never existed before doing things that no one could even imagine. And they've put all of their trust into us. And so we have to meet them in that and give them the capabilities to go live their dreams together we can change the world. Individually, we're interesting. Together, we can change commerce. And then the third is technology for large complex customers has always been terrible. They've never needed to be good because there was never an alternative. They've created a matrix where everyone believes you should just pay them because you're big. And that's bad for customers, right? That's bad for our economy. And so let's burn that to the ground, right? Let's remove that market from existing and let's let's produce a capability that customers actually love, right? Why can't we produce complex software that people fall in love with and that they think is amazing um, and that they tell their friends about? Um, and as a result, change the world and, and change the way customers interact with technology. And so, Those are the the three kind of major themes that I, uh, I spend a lot of my time talking about with our customers and our team members. Um, to get them excited about what they're doing every day and why they're coming to work and what impact that's going to have in the world.
3: Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with Intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapter die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise. Old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode.
1: Obviously, you guys work with some huge brands, uh, you know, Fashion Nova, Rebecca Minkoff, Lady Gaga, Kylie Cosmetics... You know, all birds, which a lot of our listeners probably know is a pretty popular brand in the tech sector. But it feels like, you know, a lot of influencers and celebrities are now getting involved in in, in retail. And, is you know, is that something that we're going to, like, is that a, th- a theme of the future that, you know, retail will get even harder because you kind of need to almost have an audience or, a you know, a, some, some kind of form of celebrity before you can then even build a
2: retail brand? Um. Yeah. Okay, so commerce is experience. That's all it is, right? As, as commerce continues, whether it's online or offline, it is 100% about experience. And so I think the brands that are focused on understanding their customer at an intimate level, right? really deeply understanding the customer, the whole life of their customer, and building experiences online, offline, in mobile, in augmented reality, wherever it is that meet that customer where they want to be will do well. The ones that are focused on community building, on once you have those customers, how do you build a community around them? How do you let them interact? How do you help be part of their daily lives will will be successful? And then, yeah, the influencer thing is fascinating for two reasons. A lot of the celebrities are trying to figure out how to build businesses. They're entrepreneurs. They're just a specific type of entrepreneur. So they're now looking at it as, I don't don't want to build around celebrity. I want to build around legacy. I want to build something that outlasts my celebrity. And so you see a lot of big celebrities building big brands and supporting those brands because those will last longer than their celebrity lasts. And, And that's valuable to them for lots of reasons. You see influencer marketing as a mechanism to drive a community engagement. It's You have a group of customers that you know really likes these influencers, and so you're using those influencers as a jumping-off point. And some people use them, some brands use them forever, and some use them to just create the first set of community, and then they engage that community directly. So I don't think that the involvement of influencers removes brands, and I don't Mm -hmm. think every brand needs influencers. Right? You, You referenced Allbirds, who... Allbirds isn't an influencer marketing brand. What happens is, is they made such great products, their customers love them so much that influencers talked about them anyways. Yeah, I, I, like one of the original influencers for Allbirds was was President Obama. Well, you can't pay a president <laughs> to like promote your brand, right? So, yeah. so you know, it's like build know your customer, build product that they love, and they might talk. These the influencers will talk about you anyways because it's just things they love. So. I think you see a lot of this experimentation and I think you're going to see a lot more of it. I think you're going to see influencer brands as we see now with Jeffree Star and Kylie and stuff like that are going to be huge and, you know, change the nature of selling and, and things like that. But I think you've got to think about it from your own brand and say, well, what's, what's critical to you yeah. and, uh, and your community? I think it's really interesting that you say it. it's, it's it's about, you know, retail is about an experience
1: now because, uh, you know, so many people in e-commerce for years would have said it was about transactions. And I think that's that's key, isn't it, to the difference?
2: Well, right. And all those retailers are dying. Yeah. Everyone absolutely. who said or maintains it's about tra- transaction or anyone who's arguing about dollars per square foot or things like, it's like, yeah, you don't understand the consumers anymore. Consumers have unlimited choice. Well, in unlimited choice, if you're just about transaction, you're dead on arrival. And Absolutely. so, you see that shift most heavily happening is is the shift to experience.
1: Lauren, we could we could talk about this all day, but uh, we, we we will have to wrap up, unfortunately. Before we do finish, though, I'd love to know, like you know, we we touched on influencers there. You know, who influences you, or where where do you get your inspirations from in ter- terms of
2: your business career? Yeah. So a, a couple places, you know, I, I'm obviously hugely implu- influenced by our our merchants and the entrepreneurs we work with every day. They are fascinating and vast and different. So talking to them is hugely energizing and gives me a, a huge amount of motivation. In my own career, um, I've been lucky to have amazing bosses that I can learn a lot from. You know, Harley is my current one, and and he is spectacular. And I've had great great past bosses. And then uh, in the world, Omed Kordestani, ex-Google, first business person at Google, now the exec chairman of Twitter. Um, I've always been like really inspired by his own path and what he built at Google and things of that nature. So there are Jeff Wiener at LinkedIn, another one. I just think you know, it's such a, a great mm-hmm. leader. And and then Satya Nadella, uh, I think is also the transformation yeah. at, at Microsoft is nothing short of
1: no one would have bet
2: on that yeah Yeah. no one would have bet on that so like that that says a lot about his leadership and so yeah i I find those those folks inspiring
1: great and lauren if if people want to to learn from your writings because i certainly found found some very interesting stuff about hypergrowth that you you've written where where where's the best place to keep in touch and, and see what you're writing
2: yeah um Twitter is probably the best because if I write it, I, I'll post it wherever I wrote, post it on Twitter. So uh, at Lauren Paddleford um, is is Twitter handle. So it's probably the most succinct way to get access to what I'm thinking about.
1: Right. well, listen, thank you so much for taking the time and coming to chat to us. It was, it was really fascinating.
2: Yeah, appreciate it. thanks very much.
0: We hope you enjoyed John's conversation with Spotify's Lauren Paddleford. If you did, we'd love you to give us a review. It helps like-minded people find their way to our content. We'll be back next week with another episode of Inside Intercom featuring Daniel Scrivener. We hope you'll join us. This is Inside Intercom.